Welcome to episode 18 of the Language Neuroscience Podcast, the last episode for the year of 2021. I'd like to start by saying thank you to everyone who's listened to the podcast over the year, and for all the kind words people have shared with me. When I started this podcast in January of this year, I had no idea how many people were going to find it informative and educational and entertaining, something worth adding to the mix of things you listen to. And I feel so lucky to have had all these fascinating conversations with the guests who've been so generous as to come on the show. Every single one of them, exceptional researchers at different stages of their careers. It's been so much fun to talk with old friends and to make new ones in this way. My final guest for the year is a very special one, Kathy Price, Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience and Director of the Wellcome Trust Centre for Neuroimaging at University College London. As most of you probably know, Kathy is one of the most outstanding researchers in the neuroscience of language. She has been imaging the language network since the very beginning and has written literally hundreds of papers on practically every topic within our field, functional neuroanatomy, speech perception, comprehension, speech reduction, reading, development, and aphasia, the list could go on. As of 2020, she is also a fellow of the Royal Society, which is a really big deal. Needless to say, we're only going to scratch the surface today of all the work she has done. Okay, let's get to it. Hi, Kathy. How are you? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's a tricky question to start with. I'm on day six of uh, COVID. Yes, um, but not so bad given that. Well, that's not good news. Uh, well, it's good that I've been triply vaccinated and um, my symptoms have been relatively mild. Um, I, I still wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to pass it on to anyone though. Yeah. Are you having to isolate from your whole family? Yep. Yep. All our Christmas plans have been um, cancelled. Um, I'm not oh, allowed no. out until after Christmas, uh, unless I test uh, uh, negative, but... That, that little line on the lateral flow test keeps bouncing up. Um, oh, what a shame. Yeah, strong and powerful. So yeah. are you like isolating within your home from your family members? Uh, no. Well, I got it from Joe. So Joe got it first. My uh -huh. husband, my husband Joe got it first. And, um, and we were supposed to have our family Christmas on the 18th. And um, so we had to cancel that because Joe was sick. And then on the 18th, one week later, I got it, which then cancelled the Christmas Day plans. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. Um, and now my younger daughter is homeless. So she's currently gone to my parents, but they're in their 90s. So that's not so good um, because she could be a risk to them. And um, uh, yeah, if, if all goes well, we'll have Christmas on the 2nd of January. If she doesn't come home and get it and then puts us all back into isolation. Right, yeah. I mean, it does seem like England has got very high case numbers right now, especially in London where you are, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so many people I know are infected. And 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 some people are not even, you know, testing or, you know, they have the symptoms, but they don't want to know. Right. Because what are you going to do? I mean, apart from isolate, I guess. Yeah. 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 How, how, how are the cases in your end? Well, you know... You know, there's a lot in New York, but Nashville, it hasn't really got here yet. I mean, there's only like a handful of Omicron cases in Nashville so far. So we yes. were kind of in a lull. We had like a lot of Delta like six months ago and um, maybe four months ago. But things have been pretty, you know, not too bad around here lately. That's I'm, good. It's, but I know it's coming. I'm, it's definitely coming. Yeah. The, the Omicron but wave. I'm still fingers crossed that, you know, it'll be wiping out Delta. So. And well, we, yeah, um, I mean, maybe it'll just kind of be like the vaccination for those that didn't take the one that was on offer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I think we can only hope for the best. I mean, it, it does seem like the more data that comes in, the more it seems like it genuinely yeah. is milder. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me, even though, you know, you're dealing with this health issue. <laughs> well, thank you for inviting <laughs> me. It's a lovely distraction. Yeah, I've been wanting to talk to you all year, ever since I started this podcast, um, as you know, we talked about it back when I um, met with some of your students. Um, so yeah, but with you. Um, so I'd like to start by asking you um, what kind of interests you had as a child and did any of them kind of point the way to your eventual scientific career? Mm, well, um, I'm afraid they did. I was, I was fascinated by the brain because my aunt told me that all the emotions that I had were controlled by my brain. So I had this 
idea that if I could understand how the brain worked, I could control my emotions and that would make me a happy person all the time. So <laughs> that was that was my childhood thing. And um, yes, I was I was yeah, I, I, I was fascinated by the brain, but there, there, there weren't any um, there weren't any neuroscience degrees available. And then I decided to study psychology and physiology, thinking that that would be the boundary between brain, you know, the, uh, the, um, the link that I would, I would get to neuroscience. But um, yeah. Yeah. What kind of emotions were you having as a kid that you wanted to control? Were you kind of? Well, I, I think, I think it was a bit hyperactive, overexcitable, uh -huh. um, all of those things. Um, too much energy. Is that really so I was a bad constantly thing? Getting told off. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was constantly saying why. I was one of those really annoying kids. Why? 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 Um, my dad used to say because I said so. <laughs> but, but why? You say <laughs> yes. And you wanted to put a stop to that. I don't think that's the right strategy. <laughs> well, the brain is obviously very clever. Yeah. Um, so when you so you got your so you're saying you studied psychology um and um physiology is that what you said yeah physiology um, and mm -hmm. psychology so you went to Birkbeck Birkbeck College um and no no I went to Bedford College which doesn't exist anymore oh okay and that's that was in the middle of Regent's Park and I chose that because it was in the middle of the park so and I was I came from the country so you know, I'd, I, I, yeah. So the idea of being in London, you know, wasn't that appealing, but being in the middle of the park seemed to be a lovely place to be. Okay. Yeah. So that was your undergrad degree. That was my undergrad degree. Yeah. And then from there, I mean, I learned a lot about cardiology and, you know, all sorts of things, which not nearly enough about the brain, but one of the psychology courses I read um, some of the early papers on deep dyslexia and uh -huh. about patients that were able to look at the word um, yacht and say ship. And I found this really fascinating. So I wrote to Max Colthart, who'd written the book, and I said, could I come and see some of these patients? And I was happy to do any help or do any volunteer work for him. Um, and he put me in touch then with a number of different people um, so um, Brian Butterworth, Glenn Humphreys, um, and other people, and just gonna Joe's just coming in, so yeah. mm -hmm. I'll start that. Um, sorry about that. No worries. Lock him in the room afterwards. Yeah, he's, he's buying dinner. What can I do? I'm stuck in. He's allowed <laughs> out at the moment because he's okay. already had COVID. Okay. You know Joe. Yeah, um, not not personally. I, I guess I only know him from his work. He's 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 gone in there. That's it. Yeah, I don't know why I say yes when I actually only know him from reading his papers. But I guess that's well, how then I feel he'll about be thrilled. People. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so yes, so so Max Colthart put me in touch with a number of different people, um, including Brian Butterworth and um, Glenn Humphreys. Oh, and Ruth Campbell, different, different people who were all doing neuropsychology. And um, Brian Butterworth gave me some great jobs. So transcribing um, Ronald Reagan's speech in the night. Um, and, and then that speech then went around the world, my transcription claiming that um, Ronald was in the first stages of Alzheimer's disease. All right. That was quite an exciting, exciting one. And with Glyn, he had just um, got married to Jane Riddock and they had a baby and um, they needed help testing the patients in the hospital. So I started testing the patients with them um, and looking after the baby. Uh, <laughs> and at some point, Glyn said, well, you know, why don't you put this towards a PhD? So that's what I did. So I ended up staying and my, you know, going to observe these patients turned into a PhD. And and was that at Birkbeck? Or if I just like that one was at Birkbeck. Okay. Yes. The Glenn was at Birkbeck, yes. So that's where I did my PhD at Birkbeck, yes. Okay. So that's that's how you had that connection to the, to end up there. Yeah. That's I mean right, I, yeah. I agree with you about those patients being 
just incredibly fascinating. I, I mean, I actually have like a really strong episodic memory of the first time I ever saw a, a patient make a deep dyslexic error and just yes. how kind of thrilling it was. <laughs> yes. It's like, how does the brain do that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so you kind of got your PhD in cognitive neuropsychology and, you know, you were doing this stuff on dyslexia and visual recognition, right? Um, but then after that, you started your career on the neuroimaging of language. And I understand you went to the MRC cyclotron unit. Can you tell me how that, how that came to be? Yes, well, the examiners on my PhD were Carolyn Patterson and David Howard, and they had just got a grant with Richard Wise, who was working at the MRC cyclotron unit, uh, and they were about to do language studies. So they were in the early stages of doing language studies. And so when Richard was, when they were looking for a research assistant, Carolyn and David, who'd read my PhD, recommended me. Um, and that's that's how I got that's how I got that job. And, um, and then it sort of took off from there. So I, once I was at the MRC, I was able to analyze all the data that they had collected. So every single one of the early studies um, I was involved in, in analyzing. Right. And it just, just went, went from there. So you were even behind the scenes on, I mean, I think that you published your first pet language paper in 92 but you, but you were even behind the scenes on the ones that came in the preceding year or two as well, huh? Yeah, I, I analyzed the one the, the one before by with David Howard was first author on that one. Right. Yeah. Uh, and at, at the, the same time, Julie Fees was doing language um, studies at um, um, Washington uh, University. And, um, and we wrote to each other by airmail letter and I still have airmail letters somewhere in my boxes in my office what that we had exchanged um so once we both knew that we were publishing we were always waiting to know when the next paper was coming out because Uh there was only about one paper a year coming out from each side so we were waiting to get get hold of what was happening uh yeah so that was that was so just goes to show so I mean we're only talking you know 30 30 so years ago, but, um, yeah. Were you, did it feel collaborative or was it competitive or was it just some kind of like blend of the two? Oh, I think it was, it was definitely a blend of the two, but there were, I mean, there was definitely, um, competition. I mean, uh, yeah, there was definitely, there was definitely competition coming from the whole units, um, because there was a big race to, you know, to do things, but when there's so few studies coming out, every study is so important. Right. I mean, I remember right. when Kenneth Pugh um, wrote his brain paper on on reading, and I was reviewing reviewing that. I remember, I mean, just four days, I did nothing but go through every single little detail of it. Right. Uh, you know, it was such a big thing to, you know, every time a new paper came out. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, things are so different now, obviously, right? I mean, there's just this pressure to publish, like, quantity. Um, and, you know, as a reviewer, I mean, like, what are you going to do? I mean, like, I you, you certainly can't go through a fine-tooth comb every paper in your area. Do you think, um, I mean, I don't know if there's any alternative, but, I mean, how do you feel about the way things are changing to this kind of, like, fire hose science that we're doing now? Um, I think the field is changing so much in what people are publishing. So, I mean, recently I've done a couple of papers with um, a student sort of looking at, um, you know, different parts, what what different parts of the left superior temporal sulcus do and what different parts of the, you know, left, you know, premotor cortex are doing in in speaking. And I I was staggered by how few papers that there had been recently in that area it was it was almost like it was a sort of done deal and or or that it wasn't an area of interest anymore to do any work on functional segregation oh um you know it's it's the field has moved on um and i and i which is good it's good i mean because there has that you know there has to be there have to be you know new perspectives but is it? I don't know. I feel like 
when there's foundational questions that haven't really been answered, maybe we shouldn't have moved on or I haven't moved on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wonder if it's actually difficult to get funding for that, that sort of work. Um, so, you know, you know, when you're applying for funding, you know, the funders want, you know, big impact papers. They don't, they don't want, um, well, I'm going to nuance what we already know and, you know, we don't, you know, there's a cloudy area. We're not really sure what's going on here. I'm going to nuance it. I think it's much more difficult to get funding for nuanced work. Right. But do you think that, like, oscillating the superior temporal sulcus, which is probably the most important language area of the brain and contains, you know, many square centimeters of tissue, is that nuance or is that, like, pretty foundational? I kind of think it's, I mean, to me it seems not just nuance um but i can see how to fund well, it might i think it's difficult to know i i've worked with so many people where they're they're so enthusiastic about every paper that they they write and it's like this is it this is you know this is such a brilliant study and they're telling me what a brilliant study they've done and it's you know when every paper i write i am you know or, or co-author mainly um, I'm so involved in that study and every little detail of it that I, I love every every contribution that I can find, you know, where there's a development. I, I like taking it forward. Um, but it's very difficult to look from the outside and say, well, what on earth are the reviewers going to say? Um, you know, but so often reviewers will say, well, don't we already know enough about that? Or, or why didn't you answer this question? Or why did you do this analysis why couldn't you have done another analysis and right. you know that the, the enthusiasm then gets completely knocked down by you know re- reviewers taking it in a new direction but yeah. I mean that's part of learning isn't it um yeah but yes there's still so much to do there is still so much to do no I, d- I think there is um yeah so that first paper that you published so just kind of like going back to that like early time I mean how did it feel to be like one of a dozen people really like kind of on this threshold of like a whole new field of science I mean did you have a sense then that you were on the you know that you were starting something big that was going to grow no I I had the sense that I was very privileged and I was doing something that I personally was fascinated by and that was my area of interest I didn't have no I didn't get that feeling I mean even when because PET you know PET was um I mean there weren't going to be PET scanners that were going to be everywhere because of and there was such a limit on how many studies that you could you could do Mm -hmm. so I, I don't think that really happened until fMRI became available and then the scale at which it could be conducted and the ease with which it could be conducted it then became apparent and and you know that it was going to be you know explosive so what did you how what was it like going from being a pet researcher to an fmri researcher was it kind of cool to like have everything become so much easier or were well, there things the you missed about that the drop was so huge so it was much we, you know, it took a while to work out how to design fMRI studies to get the same level of signal that you got in PET. And there are so many advantages to fMRI that the benefits of PET and the strength of those signals that you would get from, you know, very small samples, um, you know, wasn't wasn't appreciated. Um, yeah, and then, you know, the first thing that that I did was just sort of systematically going through, could we replicate what we'd already found in PET? Mm-hmm. And we did replicate, we did replicate it over and over and over again. Um, but it always felt like it was much easier with PET. Um, and right. then fMRI obviously offered you, you know, the ability to look at intersubject variability and that sort of became a, a big thing that I'm interested in. But um um, but those group findings and the speed at which you could get the results, it was so much easier with PET. So why couldn't you look at intersubject variability with PET? Uh, because you, you're, you are, yeah, you're summing over 
You're summing over 60 seconds of activity um, in different conditions. Yeah, you just didn't get, have the power and then you'd only have a limit. You could only give 12 bolus injections because, you know, there's a yep. radioactive yep. marker going into you. Um, and so you just didn't have enough power really at the single subject level. Oh, okay. I mean, you could try. I mean, we, we certainly did single subject. I mean, we did a, a deep dyslexic case um, with Carolyn Patterson and David Howard. We had one of their deep dyslexics um, um, come in. And um, um, yes, yeah, so we tested out, you know, the right hemisphere hypothesis. So we, we could, but not at the same level that you can with fMRI, where you, you, can, you, can, you can get a lot, a lot more measurements from the same people. You can do these longitudinal studies. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely longitudinal because you can't be, you know, putting radioactive injections in people constantly. No. Um, okay, so can we like fast forward like a decade um, to this 2012 uh, paper? <laughs> well, you wrote this rather spectacular review paper in your, it's published in your image, um, where you basically review the first 20 years of the whole imaging of language field. Um, and it contains not only an analysis of you know work from hundreds of investigators in our field, but also there's this intriguing image that, that you have in there that's got about, it divides the language, well, I, I want to say the language the network. The brain. Okay, it divides the brain into, it shows about 30 or so different language regions with distinct functions, all based on your own prior studies, overlaying activation images from your own prior studies. It's very cool. Um, I tried to teach it one year in my in my cognor of language class <laughs> that was something that i didn't try again <laughs> um it was like a little much for the students who were having their first uh, encounter with our field um but it's it's my very sympathy cool. to them <laughs> yeah it's very cool though and i and i and i know that we can't do justice to this paper in a brief discussion but i was wondering if you could kind of like share like you know what is your big picture perspective on how language is organized in the brain like can you is it even possible to summarize that paper uh, well, I think that's two different questions there. One is about the paper and one is about the big view picture of language. So maybe I can just start with the paper. So that was an in invitation for a special image of neuroimage neuro to celebrate 20 years, um, you know, in the imaging field. And I was asked to do language and um, we had a, a deadline and I started reviewing these papers. And then for month after month, I was going through <laughs> hundreds of papers. I yeah. mean hundreds and hundreds and it almost became a bit of an obsession because you know I kept picking up themes the whole time oh this again this again this again this again you know that this you know this people reinvite reinventing the wheel all the time you know as well um and and themes that I had never appreciated before so for me it was an incredible experience and learning experience but I'd like to say very clearly, I never finished that paper. I, I, at the end, <laughs> I had to wrap that up so quickly. I, I, I had um, somebody working in my office at the time, and I remember just like, "Can you help me? Just how do I get the references together? The figures, you know, everything was a mess. Nothing was how I had planned it from the beginning. Uh -huh. um, and so it was all wrapped up. And then I just thought, okay, well, that's just one of these papers that, oh, you know, like this." And it's been so surprising that it's been cited so much. Yeah. So, um, but I do, well, not recently. I have, oh, yeah, I mean, I have been back to that paper so many times, checking particular references and, and things in it. Um, but I've only, in it, I only published, you know, themes that I kept seeing over and over again. And I guess one thing, you know, that I always wonder is, are these things, you know, that they're, we replicate these things over and over again, and we keep giving them the same psychological labels. But, you know, I don't, when we get to the talking about language, I don't really believe in any of these psychological labels. I don't find them particularly useful. You know, so the, the word phonology, for example, I mean, mm -hmm. phonology is so many different things. Yeah. So let me just finish finish yeah. off the, 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 the paper. Um, it was a huge learning experience for me. Um, and I dumped a lot of stuff onto paper that is useful for me. But it was, was much more like a sort of dictionary or encyclopedia 
of what I had read in trying to produce this paper um, and put it into a sort of historical context and just go through it bit by bit. Okay. So you, so it's like an index or a dictionary, but it doesn't perhaps, I mean, and probably it informs your view of how language is organized in the brain, but maybe it's not all expressed in that paper. Is that what you're saying? Well, no, I mean, the big themes that I've had, and I know the, these are very con- controversial now, but the, the sort of my two hypotheses going into grant applications would be, I, 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 I I don't see strong evidence, and I know there's a lot of evidence coming against this view, that there are brain regions that are specialized for language. I see language as the combinatorics of many different processes that come together to enable us to communicate, including moving your mouth and moving your tongue. And I've I've written loads of papers at every level on that. uh, you know, how we hear, listening to different sounds, you know, is there anything that's specific about speech sounds? Is there anything specific about how we produce speech? Is there anything specific about, you know, the semantics? Well, maybe at the semantic levels, there are things which we wouldn't have if we didn't have words. Mm-hmm. But um, overall, it's these, it's the combination of all of these sensory motor higher level cognitive executive attentional type memory type skills that enable us to speak so that has been my hypothesis and at the moment you know it is being challenged by other other claims and I'm am looking at that very carefully and I am going into our own data to say does that hold out in what we see or what are alternative you know potential views there mm-hmm. um but overall, at the level that we have, um, I think that that's the case. And if if that's the case, it also becomes very difficult to, to name the different types of processes because, you know, um, phonology, semantics and syntax are all very linguistic, language type processes. But if, if they emerge from lots of other different things. Um, so with phonology, you know, it's, you know, this, the sounds of speech that there is, there is nothing that I have been able to find or see in, in, you know, my own data or in other people's data that shows that there's anything that's specialized just for speech sounds. And, um, and likewise at the, you know, speech production, you know, sort of, you know, phonological output phonological memory, um, all of these, these terms that we use mm-hmm. um, are, are tricky, but that's our level, that's our way of communicating. So I used those terms in the 2012 um, review, but I was using those terms because that's what's in the papers. So it right. sort of proliferates those ideas, but I don't actually think that any of those regions are language specific I think they play different roles and that they're much more lower level roles and it's how they combine together that creates you know you know word processing even not even going beyond that to sentence processing well I think that's a pretty radically different perspective than what most people how most people think about it I think a lot of people would probably get on board that all of these other systems are kind of involved and you know in particular uses of language um but i think most people also think that there's kind of a core language network too right and you're essentially denying that there's a core language network oh um, i believe it's a core language network but i don't think the core language network like brockers and bernicke's area are specific to, to, to language. They are regions that are used during language or re- regions that we need for language. But in terms of how we describe them functionally, I, I, they're, they're not just language regions. I mean, um, and, 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 and we, we will use our motor, motor cortex um, when we when we when we move our legs and we go cycling but you wouldn't say well this is the cycling area in the brain it might be an area that's always activated when you're cycling 
but that doesn't mean to say that it's a cycling it, it's it's dedicated to cycling so it, it could be involved in lots of different things right and that's right. How, that's how i see the same things with language Bernica's area will be involved in in sound processing that is not just speech processing i mean i i, I agree for the stg certainly um yeah. but getting back to our friend the sts that we were you know talking yes. about earlier I feel like, I mean, don't you feel like that's kind of like special for language? Like what else does the left STS really do? Like, I mean, what else? I mean. Well, it likes, it likes um, sounds. It likes discriminating sounds and learning different sounds, which is what we do for language. Uh-huh. And it holds sounds in memory, but there's, there's, you can, you can find tasks that it, it responds to lots of things other than speech. It likes music, but it responds more to speech than it does to music. Uh-huh. But that's in that way, you know, some of these regions are involved in multiple different low-level processes and then more engaged by speech. But that doesn't, for me, doesn't make it a speech area. Okay, so it you don't find it helpful to then put a label on it? Uh, yes, because it's then denying the fact that it's also important for other things as well. Mm-hmm. How does like naturalization kind of emerge from that framework? I mean, these all these other processes that you mentioned are mostly pretty symmetrical, and yet language isn't. Does that emerge? Yeah. How do, how does that get explained in your way of thinking? Yeah, well, I don't know. Do you? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I, I, okay. I guess I have like a fairly. Um, you know, modularist view of language in the brain, where I think that there are some areas that are language areas in some sense that, so I I do, I think I have a different perspective. But what, what happens when, you know, you have a stroke patient and they, they lose the Broca's and Wernicke's area and they, they manage to, you know, regain some speech. Well, isn't that the the question that we would both like to know the answer to? (laughs) Well, we would like to know the answer to that. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you more about that in a moment. Um, you, ju- I think that you said a moment ago or five minutes ago that there are sort of two big principles to your thinking. And like you just said one, which is basically that there aren't really language areas, that it's kind of emergent from other stuff. If yeah. I'm, I hope I'm not paraphrasing too much. Um, was there another principle you would wanted to put forward? Yeah. The, the, the other one is that, um, that the brain can do the same thing in different ways. So De- we know degeneracy, that. what you call degeneracy. But, well, I mean, I'll be careful with the word degeneracy because it's been so misunderstood from what what it's it's meant to say. Um, but um, yes, that things even with object naming, if you look at well, when you study into subject variability and you see how different people have different activations, you can either say, well, that's just noise. fMRI is really really noisy. Or you can start to find patterns in it. And that's what I, I'm very interested in pursuing and have been interested in pursuing for a long time, but haven't really done too much dedicated work on it um, to try and group people, you know, into different types that process language in different ways. And also seeing how, how people can flip between different different neural pathways um the same same person can use different pathways so for example we have a a paper at the moment looking at auditory repetition and looking at how Broca's and Wernicke's area connect and um you can see that you can see that um you know even with even with a simple task like repetition there's variance in how the how the um connectivity appears the evidence for the connectivity appears to be in different individuals and also um, within individuals you see them you know if you repeat the, the task multiple times you see them switch from one backwards and forwards between these different pathways because there's a lot of redundancy mm-hmm. um, in you know in the system there and people can sort of veer to one, you know, one system or another. And that's what I really want to um, test, you know, with patients is then what happens when you remove one of those pathways, can we see the other one 
you know, taking over? And if another one takes over, is that pathway, can you actually see it in some of the control subjects to suggest it was there all along, but it might not be the dominant pathway? Right. Yeah, that theme has been running through your work for at least 15, 20 years, hasn't it? Yep. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think maybe now that you're starting to really do the empirical studies to to investigate it. I mean, I think it's it's very interesting that we mostly throw away variability. I know you've got a paper where you discussed this. I can't remember off the top of my head which one it is. Um, you know, we mostly throw it away and do these group studies, you know, but there are these really interesting differences and um, between individuals. And, and you just have to do a little work to figure out, like, the sources of variability, like how much of it is genuine inter-individual variability versus scan-to-scan variability, just kind of for meaningless reasons, like how much caffeine they had versus interesting reasons like what their task strategy was and how that was changing but we've barely scratched the surface on all this right exactly this there's just too much work to to be done yeah well i think you're going to do it so uh, over the last um dozen years or so um i think the major focus of your lab has been what your plorus project and so plorus as our listeners might know stands for Predicting Language Outcomes and Recovery After Stroke. Um, and you introduced this project in a 2010 paper with Mohamed Segia and Alex Leff in Nature Reviews Neurology. And the project has kind of yielded a steady stream of really interesting papers ever since then. Um, so can we talk about this now? And kind of, I think we'll return to some of these other themes in the context of talking about the, this patient work. Um, but can you tell us like, what are the overall goals of the Plorus Project? Well, it is exactly, you know, as in the title, is to try and um, use the knowledge that we've already got to predict what's going to happen when you damage the brain. So it sort of comes from the background of trying to understand, you know, what are the neural systems of the language and then what happens if you damage them? How does it change? So that's the underlying theory that runs through probably all of my work since for the last 30 years that's that's been the sort of key thing trying to understand it and then the ultimate test of understanding is to be able to predict what's going to happen if you damage the system and how much more complicated is it going to get after that because we know that patients change and then what has become very clear is, is that, you know, it's not that easy doing patient studies. You, you try and find patients, as we've done recently, who've got damage, you know, just to, you know, an inferior frontal region. And you, we see so few of them, you know, because when we get patients referred to us, they've got lesions all over the place. Mm. And there's so much variability in lesion sites. The brain, you know, damages itself in multiple different ways or, or we have the sort of common middle cerebral artery lesions. Um, and it's trying to get at those focal lesions and find as many as we can. And then it became clear really from that, that we need to have as many, as many patients as possible. We need to do this large scale and how do we increase the numbers so that we can start to build up little groups of patients that have got similar um, brain damage and make predictions um, from there. And, and if you don't have that data, then how can you make these predictions? So there's, there's, there's kind of three ways of doing it. There's one sort of like totally theoretical, which is one that I, I do all the time. Everything is based on you know, the theory. But that's never going to be enough. You need to have the data. And then when you've got the data, you can either just, you know, throw machine learning at it and, you know, try and find, um, um, you know, ways of explaining it. Um, or you can, um, you know, you can use um, a much more const constrained approach where you systematically try and have sort of, um, hypotheses that you 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 test out, and mm -hmm. you know, we're trying all three of those approaches, um, and you know as are as are other people, um, and there are some things which are highly predictive. Um, well, let, let, let's talk about. Oh, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. Oh, I was going to say let, let's let's talk about the data, right? Can we talk about the data? Yeah. Um, so you have established a network of 
site where you recruit patients throughout the United Kingdom. Um, can you tell us how you did that? Because, I mean, I, I, that doesn't seem easy at all. No, that was fortuitous um, to start off. So to start with, to try and get patients, we, 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 had to, we went into communities. So we were going into stroke clubs. We were seeing people who were many years post-stroke, and we were asking them to come and volunteer. Um, so that was a huge amount of work. But to go through GP clinics or to go through the hospitals, the clinicians don't have the time to refer us the uh, questions. The, the, sorry, the clinicians don't have the, the time to refer us the patients. Um, and then um, the um, Stroke Research Network was um, set up, which was actually set up, and this is funded by the government, was set up to facilitate stroke research where they have um, dedicated nurses in the hospital that recruit patients for different studies. And then you could, you could apply for one of these, um, the, you know, to apply for a project, you know, put mm-hmm. in a proposal for what the project is. Um, and then, you, you know, you have your protocol and you, you know, you, you, you get your ethics support. And then that is opened up for any of the hospitals with these research nurses to choose if they would like to take on that, that project or they'd like to contribute to it. Um, and that just worked out in our favor. We, we, we started off, I think, with 60 sites. Um, it, was, it, was, it took years to build up. So I mean, uh-huh. we are talking about the paperwork, the data sharing, all the procedures. I mean, literally, when we went for our final ethics, I think, you know, I'm, I'm talking uh, a mountain of papers that we took yeah. with us. You so know, this, I is mean, an, this is an audio could, podcast, so I'm just going to say that Kathy is indicating a foot-high IRB form. Oh, my, bigger than a foot. Bigger Not than a foot. One person couldn't carry them. It took two of us <laughs> to carry the papers. We had so many papers. That IRB we had. forms that had to be carried by multiple people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, but once, once, um, once, <laughs> once that had been done, and we then had to stop because we couldn't take on any more. We couldn't take on any more sites. We didn't have the staff to to deal with all the patients as well, you know, to test them all. So then we had, you know, this backlog of, you know, 2,000 patients who volunteered to be part of our study that we couldn't accept into the study because we didn't have time to to test them. Um, And so then, you know, a, a huge amount of work has gone into, well, how do we automate our processes so that we make it easier and easier to you know, to acquire the data and store the data because, you know, for every patient that you you test, you've then got, you know, just as much time transcribing all the results onto the database. Mm-hmm. That and was you, time. And yeah. then there was the metal checking. So we had all of these patients that were all volunteered to come to London and have their brain scanned. Um, but we had to go through all of their medical records, um, you know, all so, and that was so time consuming too. Um, oh, tell me about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you, uh, you test them with the comprehensive aphasia test, right? That's your sort That's of core, right, core yes. battery. And then you do structural MRI on everybody and functional on a subset of them. That's right. Yeah. I mean, are you like, um, a person that's comfortable dealing with large amounts of bureaucracy and paperwork, or are you just really good at delegating that to other people? Oh, well, undoubtedly my, the team, um, the team dealt with it. Um, I mean, I've spent the last few weeks going through all of our protocols, you know, again, checking every single line and it is so tedious, but it's so important too. And it's quite clarifying to get all of that paperwork neat um, mm-hmm. and sorted, um, you know, to avoid any confusions, you know, for the team as well, to make everybody read the paperwork so that they know what's happening. Right. Yeah. So, so how many patients do you all have now well, like, that you've actually from, acquired data on? From March 2020, that was before the lockdown, uh-huh. we had um, – around 1500 1500 um so that was that was on our first <laughs> testing since then we've maybe we're heading up to nearly another thousand 
collected through lockdown. And the reason we've managed to do that is that rather than ask them to come into London, we've asked the research nurses in the hospitals to send us their clinical scans. Okay, so you're just going to make use of those. So now what we're doing is we've got, you know, the initial predictions based on the research scans um, and the, the CAT testing. And now we have got, um, now we've got the clinical scans and we're testing out the predictions that we generated on the research scans with mm-hmm. the clinical scans um, and then doing a prospective study um, to see, you know, how accurate the predictions are and how much we can improve them. Oh, wow. And the clinical scans, are they all acquired acutely? Yes. And the research scans are acquired at various chronic time points? Mainly, most of our patients were months or years after stroke. I mean, months because, one, it took so long to do the metal checking, (laughs) and two, for them to be well enough to come to London, and then three, our massive backlog of waiting list of people to come in. I don't want to go all technical here. Um, but just really as a quick aside, like, have you compared how different the strokes look on acute and chronic? Because in my lab, we're finding that people's chronic lesions look pretty different than their acute oh, lesions. Yes. Yeah, we have. We have are, some papers on that too. Are you going to... Um, the, 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 the growth that you see, yes. It is oh, you different. see the lesion get bigger? We see the lesions get... Well, we see, yes, the automated lesion identification that we use it does get bigger because it's picking up on, you know, more, more water. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's like some degeneration that goes on of like white matter tracks and stuff, but I mean, we've also noticed the opposite, you know, like sometimes things that are acutely appear damaged don't turn out to be damaged, you know, they, they yes. it turns yeah. out to not have, been, I mean, you know, we kind of have this idea that like restricted diffusion is predictive of irreversible, you know, cell damage. Um, yes, but, but we're finding that there's like not insignificant amount of cases where actually, um, you know, you can see that it didn't die because it's still functionally active like a year later. Yes, yes. Well, uh, well we've been investigating that recently, um, just looking at the fMRI fMRI signal and seeing that in something that looks like it's in the lesion, you can see some um, task-specific responses. Yeah. And then if you go into the image and you change all the, um, you know, effects, you brighten it all up, you can see what looks like, you know, tissue that potentially is, you know, working underneath. Um, yeah, it, it's pretty shocking. I mean, I, I guess we all sort of quantify lesions good, in some though, way. It? Yeah, it is good. I mean, I mean, one thing that's always struck me about scanning patients is that like, let alone activity in the lesion, yeah, you'll see activity in areas that where they're objectively damaged. I mean, they're not normal, but yeah. they can still be functionally active. But yeah. one thing we always see, and I'm sure you do too, is that like any activations that were supposed to be there are always going to go right up to the edge of the lesion, you know? Like if somebody has like, if they're missing like half a broker's area, the other half is going to be doing just great. Yes. Do you see that? Yeah. Yeah. It'll yes. just go right up to the edge. It'll be like, I don't care that like my neighbor one millimeter away is destroyed. I'm just going to keep on activating yeah. to this, this language task. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, I don't want to get, it's hard for me not to get like sidetracked into the details with you because we have really common interests, but um, kind of just getting back to our main themes. Um, so, you know, the central goal, as you said, is predicting, right? Predicting outcome. And you have at least one and major paper. And explaining. Oh, and explaining it. Okay. Yeah. Predicting and explaining. Predicting and explaining. So in the last five years, my, my program has been called Eloras, not, not Ploras, which is explaining language outcome and recovery after stroke. Okay. Well, that, so, cause you you got the prediction taken care of and now you got to understand why. Well, no, I haven't got the prediction, but having the explaining is very important for improving the prediction. Right. So the, right. the two things go, go hand in hand, but the explaining part has all the fMRI in it, whereas mm-hmm. the predicting part is based on the structural and all the non-lesion factors. Right. So I think the major paper that describes the predicting part so far, and I'm sure you've got more in the pipeline, is Hope et al. 2013, right? Yeah. Um, can you tell us about that paper? Like, To what extent were you able to predict people's uh, long-term outcomes based on their lesion location and other factors? Well, 
Um, I think the main point of that paper was to identify what are the main predictors. And that was focusing on the importance of uh, lesion site, you know, time post-stroke. It wasn't about making clinical type predictions, which is what I want to be able to, to do. So, um, but it was about trying to explain the data and identify what are the, the most important predictors. Mm -hmm. And also the other thing that um, I love about that paper and you know, all credit, this is to, to, to Tom Hope. He's the person who led that. He's the person who, who you know, um, designed and ran the analysis and knows how to do the machine learning. Um, 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 is the the output um, was probabilistic, so it wasn't about it. It always gives you a confidence in how you can be about a prediction. So many of the predictions, you know, we can generate. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they you can you can you can show a sort of predictive trajectory, but there's also you know um, you know there's there's a confidence interval on it which can be very wide. Um, where you couldn't yes. possibly use it clinically, and sometimes you see it where it's it's you know it's very tight, and you could do that those predictions. Totally. So I, mean, I really uh, like that approach in that paper because it 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 gives you those two things: that what are the different variables and the, these sort of beautiful outputs. Yeah. Because um, it's it's the yeah the point estimate as well as the the extent of variability both need to be communicated to clinicians and patients and family members right i mean it's yes. not you i mean like you could tell somebody that had like a and i agree with you like sometimes you can make a really accurate prediction like if somebody had like a small lesion even if they're very bad acutely you can tell them with great confidence that they'll be fine in a year um yeah if it depending on where it is exactly i mean not the sts maybe um but whereas a large lesion, like you're going to have a much wider confidence interval and that, and that needs to, you know, because some people are going to do great and going to recover way better than what most stroke neurologists mm -hmm. would expect. And others are going to be like, you know, permanently severely impaired and being able to yes. communicate that uncertainty, I think is very important as well. Right. Yes, definitely. Um, so has the Pluris project or the um, Eloris project, um, supported your concept of degeneracy do you are you seeing evidence for that notion that many speech and language functions can be performed by multiple different systems i think the fmri data undoubtedly shows that the, the problem with it is it that we it's um there are so many different activation patterns that we see and it's trying to it's trying to organize them um, and dissociate them from, from noise in the measurements that we're having. Um, but, but um, so, so we, I mean, we're just scratching the surface because it's extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult because, um, you know, even, even with the same, we know it's a moving target all the time. But so, for example, if we take damage to the, you know, you know, the, the left inferior, the left prefrontal cortex, the left inferior frontal, you know, gyrus, we just take damage to that. We know people are going to be changing over the time and their behavior. So even if you match up the um, lesion location, mm -hmm. you, it's very difficult to match up the, um, the, the time post-stroke that you're actually testing them or how fast they're going to recover. Um, and that's why what I want to do next is to try and, do it longitudinally right from the beginning where we pick up patients who've got specific lesion sites and then we watch what happens to them over time. And is it the case that if we control for the amount of relearning that they do, that we see that they're all going along different parts of the same trajectory, or is it that they're going off and they're doing different, they're using different strategies to overcome for the loss of, you know, what we consider as an important region. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I haven't seen any evidence against it uh, um, because we see patients change. They, they have different activation um, patterns and they, there undoubtedly appear to be some that are lesion specific. 
And then there are others that seem to be irrespective of their lesion. Um, you know, so for, for example, the right frontal, um, you know, increased activation in the right frontal cortex. I mean, that mm -hmm. could be a strategic, you know, attention type um, strategy that happens when your, your brain is working brain is working hard and the parietal lobes as well when your brain's working hard you know that they're they they have to come in to help you so there are those strategic things that are helping but then there also appear to be things which are lesion site specific and then what do those ones mean does it mean that you know there's it, there's sort of reorganization of a specific sort of functional network mm -hmm. um you know um Yes, and what's 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 happening, and you know how how is it that you know you can how is it that you can do the same task when you've removed an important bit of tissue like Broca's and Wernicke's area? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to what extent do you think it's the right hemisphere? And I'm going to like kind of like scaffold my question a bit more than that. So you have this great paper from a long time ago now, 2005, with Jenny Crenian, um, that shows that patients that had more activation in right temporal cortex did better on uh, I think auditory sentence comprehension measures after stroke um, but you didn't argue that that was a reorganization to the right because you you observed that the right hemisphere activity wasn't really out of the bounds of normals because normals also have some right you know albeit less less than left yeah. so I mean to what extent do you think um, is is the right uh, is the right hemisphere mirror of the left hemisphere network is that a, a degenerate or part of you know, kind of a degenerate pathway that's available to different extents for different individuals. Mm. Um, I I don't have much evidence to support that. I think number one, it's really really task specific. Um, so it's going to depend. It's going to depend on the task, and it's going to depend on the lesion site, and depend on how much of the left hemisphere is damaged. Um, I think the only you know evidence that we really have is when we get these large left hemisphere lesions where there's nothing left in the left and they're not activating anything in the left and they're activating on the right. That's the only time when you see, well, that's what the right is doing. But most of those patients tend to be pretty impaired with a mm -hmm. huge left hemisphere middle separate. So that's not a good illustration that the right hemisphere can completely take over, but it can certainly do some of the functions um, that the left hemisphere can do. Yeah. These are all questions that we've been thinking about, you know, and when I say we, I mean you, me, the, you know, the whole community for so long. And it's just taking so long to address them because we don't have sufficient data and resources, I think. Yeah, and I mean, we're distracted by many other questions. We've all got so many questions we're trying to answer at the same time. But the data—I mean, the size of your data set is definitely going to make progress possible. You know, I mean, I, I hope I, so, and I, I, and I, so, and I hope that you know we we will ne we you know that by opening that data up, making it available, other people can in the future, you know, tap in and uh, address yeah. these questions. I mean, I know you. I so you, you said you had about. And now about twenty five hundred structural scans. I don't know. You don't have fMRI on all of them, but you probably have fMRI on at least a few hundred now, right? Um, yes, but the thing with fMRI is that it's the changing of this. So we've got about a hundred on our latest paradigm, and then we've got you know another hundred on another paradigm. So that makes it slightly difficult for trying to bring things together. And the fMRI paradigm was only really up and running for about two years before lockdown. So we've lost two years of that scanning yeah. and we won't be able to replace that because that's, um, uh, yeah, the, the way the funding works is we don't have funds to do those particular scans. Yeah. But I mean, this is definitely going to be the way forward. I mean, like, you know, in just to kind of put things in perspective, like, you know, my, my student Sarah Schneck and I did this meta analysis of the literature on, you know, reorganization in aphasia. And like we included every study that had six or more participants. You know, we're talking six. Like we're, yeah. um, I mean, a, a lot of the seminal studies have like six, 12, you know, yeah. maybe 20 if it's a big sample. And you're going to come out start. of it. Yeah, it's a great start. Um, but it's sort of, de it definitely makes clear, like once you start thinking about like lesion variability and the need to have like coherent 
groups of patients that actually have the same lesion. So you can kind of see like, then what do they do differently functionally? You know, you're not going to get that with samples of six or 12 or 20, right? You're going to need to have like hundreds of patients. Well, unless can... those, those samples are carefully matched the lesion site, but generally they're not. Yeah, mostly not. Yeah. So yeah, I'm excited to see what comes, what's coming in yeah. the next few years from your lab. Um, me, me, me too. Yeah. <laughs> so just to kind of uh, wrap things up, I just have a couple of, just a couple more questions, um, more, more general. Um, like one of the things I admire about you as a scientist is that, that you write in a really sort of simple and unpretentious way. And I was wondering oh, if, I was wondering if you had any kind of mentors or how you learned to write, like, was it by copying certain writers or did somebody teach you to write or did it just come naturally? Wow. Um, you know, I, I was, a, I was a scientist with, um, I, you know, I was good at maths and not, um, and not English. So English was my weak point at school. So. Um, <laughs> Maybe that's why you write well. <laughs> so I, I, you keep really, it simple. Really, I read really, really um, slowly. If I read or when I read, um, you know, Carl Friston's papers, probably it takes me eight hours to, you know, get from one start of it to the end of it. Um, but um, yeah, there are so many different writing styles. And I think some of my students have helped as well. Um, and I think that, you know, Carl Friston, I remember him once telling me, you know, so like, what, what did you do at the weekend? Oh, he said he'd written three papers. I said, you can't write three papers in the weekend. That's not possible. You know, it takes a year to write three papers. And he goes, oh, well, if you've got the formula for writing papers, you can <laughs> write papers. And he, he described his formula, which was the aim of the paper is blah. The hypothesis is A. The alternative hypothesis is B. We tested this by doing this, and we found, you know, that actually there's better evidence for something called C. Well, done. See, three papers. <laughs> yeah, you're right, and I see that in some of your papers too. Like, I know that Carl Friston has this style where he'll he'll write literally, "This paper is about blah blah." Like, that'll be the yes. the first line of the paper. This is a paper about blah blah. And, yeah, and then it's, that, it gets a bit more tricky. Yeah, uh, yeah, it goes downhill from there. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's really easy to read the first paragraph of his papers yeah. for the reasons that you just said. Um, okay, so the last thing, like, um, you know, so you've co-authored over 300 papers. Um, and, you know, I think we all know that in, in science, we sometimes get to be a medical author on things where we, you know, made a somewhat fleeting contribution. But I don't think that's largely the case for you. I think you play an uncommonly large role in an uncommonly large fraction of the papers that you're a co-author on. And so my question is just basically, how are you so productive? Um, <laughs> I, I really enjoy the papers of the best bit for me. So I, 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 as you know, I'm in isolation at the moment with COVID. And before this, before having COVID, the week before we were in isolation because my husband had COVID. So I'm on my second week. Um, and I have just engrossed myself in writing a paper with uh, one of my students um it's, it's it's becomes a bit of a hobby i mean i'm going through it in detail over and over again um yeah so and it's a way of communicating with people so uh -huh. I, yeah i i guess i do really really enjoy it i love the learning process i love you know i enjoy looking at the literature i yeah, and I like doing it with somebody, you know, where you're flipping something backwards and forwards and everybody comes back with a, a different thing. I had a wonderful experience, if I can just tell you about this, yeah. with writing a paper with a Chinese um, a Chinese man called Wei Hu. Mm -hmm. And it, this was a paper that was about developmental dyslexia in um, China and um, Chinese and English dyslexics. And it came about because he wrote to say he wanted to do a study on developmental dyslexia. And I had been working dis developmental dyslexia. And um, so I sent him all of our stimuli, all of our data, all of our paradigms, everything. And then two years later, he wrote back to me and said, yes, I've now collected 400 um, data from 400 people. Isn't yeah. <laughs> um, Now what do I do? So I then, <clears throat> then went through with him. 
um, like, well, let's exchange. You send us your data. We'll send us your, your our data, and then we can both analyze it and see what we come up with, and see what we can we can compare the Chinese and English um, dyslexics, dyslexics. Um, and so eventually, we got to be writing this paper together. And I literally think that every day he would take every sentence that I put and put it through the English dictionary of some sort of translation of some sort. Because uh-huh. he'd come up with sentences. This sentence means this. I don't think we mean this. I think we mean that. And so often he was right. I think, oh, goodness, okay, that's technical. I mean, sometimes it didn't work, obviously, as we know, you know, the translators <laughs> come uh-huh. up with something bizarre but it was such a fun experience and I truly truly missed writing papers I only wrote one with him but I truly missed it after that so I do it's such a it's a way of communicating with people and developing ideas so if you've got an enthusiastic co-author then it's it's fun do you agree oh oh yeah I kind of like writing I, I there's other stages that I enjoy more you know I think that my favorite stage is is the data analysis yeah. Um, you know, where you get to see, but the don't you do data analysis time. when you're writing and checking backwards and forwards? So uh, for me, it's a two-way. Not so much. I mean, I, I, I think I pretty much like make all my figures before I even write down a word. And they're like, oh. they're, they don't change much after that. I mean, like sometimes something will come up in the writing where you think about it differently and realize you need to analyze the data differently, but mostly it's more sequential for me. Maybe that's my mistake. <laughs> well, um, I won't take any more of your time you probably got a paper that you need to be getting to um <laughs> and I, I really appreciate um you joining me on the podcast it's been fun it's been fun to see you Steve. yeah you too um i i'm sorry that your christmas got messed up by covid and i hope um that you can have an alternative one in the new thank year. you and i hope i hope you um you have a fun one what are you doing for Christmas? Um, just, well, this is, I need to scan one more person this afternoon and then I'm going to be off for a week. We're going to just hang out with my kids. Uh, my wife's parents are staying with us. We've got six people in the house and uh, it's just going to be, you know, fun time, a lot of eating and drinking. Lovely. How old are your kids? Uh, they are five and eight. Well, I hope they have fun too. Oh, they will. They're having a great time. Yeah, Good. All right. Well, take care and I'll hope to catch up with you soon. Bye. Bye then, Steve. Bye. Okay. Well, that's it for episode 18 and for the year of 2021. I hope you all have a happy holiday season and a happy new year. I'd like to thank Marcia Pettit for transcribing this episode and also episodes 14, 15, and 16, which were not transcribed before now. Thank you all for listening and see you next year. Bye for now.